Hello and welcome to At The Source. I'm Alex and this is Karis. This is a podcast about food stories. We love talking about food. And eating it. And now we're on a mission to record and share interesting food stories from people all over the UK and beyond. Join us as we explore food in all its glory. A few weeks ago, Karis and I found, found ourselves sipping cocktails at the very decadent Milk Thistle Bar in Bristol. We were there for the launch of An Echo of Scandal, the latest novel by author Laura Madeline. It's a tale of murder, power and mystery, set between the 1920s and 1970s, and I've almost finished reading it in four days flat. With evocative descriptions of Tangier, which are backed up by some gorgeous photos on Instagram from Laura's research trip, this is a must-read. But why are we interviewing Laura for a food podcast, you ask? Well, as an avid foodie herself, food and drink weaves its way through all of her novels. Settings have included a Belle Epoque-era Paris patisserie, a French Catalonian restaurant in 1919, and a bakery in Italian-occupied France during World War II. And, in an echo of scandal, each chapter is introduced with a vintage cocktail recipe, not unlike the ones we were supping at the launch party. And actually, I have one in front of me now. Laura is fascinated by food history, food economy and food cultures and as someone who doesn't work in the industry we knew she'd make a great guest able to talk about all these things from a totally different perspective. Anyway enough of me let's get started. Welcome Laura. Hello. Let's start with the good stuff. What's your first memory of food? Uh, first ever memory of food. My my grandma's really important to me when it comes to food and she was very influential in everything that I've done and and my sort of evolution of cooking and baking and everything. So she used to look after us every day after school. And so my earliest memory is probably sitting on the countertop eating apple peel while she peeled apples and made an apple crumble. So really simple ingredients, but I, I still love doing that and I love the taste of cooking apples really sour peel very interesting it's apple season now in fact literally just today we were talking about making a crumble it's such a comforting i think if you grow up in the uk kind of apple crumble and custard is a classic home kind of home pudding isn't it that everybody grew up with and she had damsons in her garden i was trying to describe and b wilson wrote an amazing um, article recently about jam and I was trying yes. to yeah it was a great article I was trying to think about how to describe the taste of homemade dams and jam because there's something about the homemade taste which is different absolutely it's this kind of almost dusty muskiness which in a, in a good way um, that shop-bought jams just don't have um, so that's again mm. the, the memory of my grandma making that sort of dams and jam and eating that with crumbles and on homemade scones I should ask you to just describe all kinds of food to me. I feel you're like you've got the right vocabulary to do <laughs> yeah. that. As a writer, yeah. yeah. I'm, quite, I'm quite obsessed by metaphors, so I'm always sort of scrabbling around to try and describe something in a way that hasn't necessarily, avoiding the cliches, but still trying to really nail it in terms of the feeling. I think this is going to make me pretty hungry. Yes. <laughs> now let's talk about an, a more adult memory. What was your first cocktail memory well embarrassingly the first cocktail i can ever remember ordering was a tequila sunrise oh dear oh <laughs> i know it's really shameful i mean what do you do when you're 18 though i'm oh, assuming you were this is oh, of course. You, were, you were doing the legal thing i was of drinking age obviously um, <laughs> no i think i think i'd seen desperately seeking susan which is a film with madonna and she her drink of choice is a triple tequila sunrise so i'm not sure i ordered Powerful. a triple but i thought oh yeah that's, that's can great. you order a triple 
Like maybe when we were younger you could, but I'm not sure that you could do it yeah. now. Yeah, Madonna's pretty old. <laughs> I mean, this was a classic 80s film. But um, yeah. apart from that, again, it goes back to my grandma because it, at six o'clock on the dot, it was gin and tonic time. And so, you know, she used to let me make them for her. She'd be like, right, this, my grandma, I could do my grandma's voice. She doesn't actually sound like She'd go, right, go and make me a gin and tonic. <laughs> that is sort of how she talked. Um, and the way she taught me to make it was um, they used to drink beefeater gin back then. And it was three capfuls of beefeater gin. Wow. Two it's ice. not too much. Well, well, I suppose capfuls are, the caps aren't too big. The oh, they were at the time. Oh, okay. They? okay. It was at least a triple. Um, and then sort of two two ice cubes, a slice of lemon and top it up with tonic. So that's that's what how, you know, she'd teach me to make it and then she'd let me sort of have a sip of it and things. Your grandma's um, a fun lady. She's amazing. She's 99. I went to her 99th birthday uh, last week. Oh, of course. And she's still... Uh, yeah, you mentioned yeah. that actually at the, at the book launch, didn't yeah. you? That you? Does she still have a 6pm gin and tonic? Yes, not just the one. Good either. for her. <laughs> That's what retirement is for. Good for her. Absolutely. Yeah, she's um she's great. But again, like she would she'd have this ritual. And so now even like the smell of the smell of gin, um, that kind of like sharp, stinging kind of smell of tonic as well, just before you sort of take a sip. It just when I start thinking about it, then I immediately think of Walker's crisps. Because she would eat, always eat a packet of those as well with them, and then I immediately think of these glass um, swizzle sticks that oh, they yeah. had, which my mum had bought for her when she was um, a little girl. But then my grandma, apparently one Christmas, she didn't really pay any attention, so I just did like dismissed it, which really upset my mum. And so by the time my grandma was old, she used these things every day. I think as her way of showing, like, look, I, you know. I, I'm sorry that I didn't appreciate them at the time. So that's all, all of those things are really wrapped up together. When Whenever I think about a gin and tonic, that's like this cycle it goes through. That's lovely. Yeah. Food we, memories. <laughs> so on the topic of families, your sister is also a writer. So we assume writing is something that runs in, in the family. Did you always know that this was what you wanted to do? Well, Lucy always knew she wanted to be a writer for a lot longer than I did. Um, she's wanted to be a writer for since forever, really. She loves, she writes fantasy mostly, and so she always loved that genre. We read a lot of fantasy growing up. Um, she started her first novel, I think, when she was thirteen. Um, finished it when she was fifteen. Started another one when she was seventeen. So she was always writing, and I sort of came to it a bit later. I think I wanted to be an archaeologist at first. Oh, me too. Yeah. I actually wanted to be an archaeologist. And I think there's some... We should start a club. <laughs> yeah. We, we should... should start a club. We should go and do an archaeology course. Yes. Not never too late. Okay, let's let's take this conversation <laughs> for after recording, but let's definitely remember to do yeah. that. Anyway, I'd continue. And I've, I've, yeah, thinking about getting a metal detector. But anyway, let's... <gasps> yes. I've always wanted a metal detector. <laughs> yes. Have you ever watched The Detectorists? Oh, I love oh, that show. wow, okay. Okay, we have to stop this now. This is a okay, yeah, we have to stop. Yeah, this yeah. is a total yeah. tangent. Um, <laughs> Back to um, yes. family writing. Family yeah. writing. Um, so it took me a bit longer, but I eventually started uh, my first book when I was about uh, 19. I was on my gap year, travelling around uh, Australia, actually, and we'd gone to a... It's a little chocolate shop. Uh, I don't know what, I can't remember where we were. I think it was just outside of Melbourne. And this chocolate shop was so decadent. And I'd never really seen 
chocolates made that way before. And I started thinking and it gave me this idea for, you know, someone with so much money who's always searching for the perfect the perfect thing that money can't quite buy, you know, the perfect recipe. And that eventually I just started writing and then kept kept going and kept going. And that eventually became my first novel, which uh, will never see the light of day oh. because uh, <laughs> that's firmly in a drawer, that one. That was practice. You wouldn't go yes. back and rejig it down the track? Oh, I think it's no. I mean, Not there's... No. My agent sometimes says... Uh, he sometimes teases me and says, you know, I've still got it. It's in a drawer. I could bring it out and show everyone. I'm like, no, no, for God's sake. Keep it so where it is. right from the very first time that you started writing, food was always there. Yeah, it was. Definitely Why? a theme. Why? Oh, I'm thinking about this. I, I always have a different answer. I think there's something, it's, it's quite an elusive thing to try and write about and also sort of not universal because obviously food experiences are different for everybody mm. but um it's that that sort of you can find common ground with it trying to describe something that's so true and yet it's also intensely personal as mm. well mm. so that it's just a fascinating area to to work in and just knowing you're going to create those kind of um that kind of back and forth of familiarity and something different for a reader I think that's really interesting. And then also setting. My books are always set in kind of border regions, which okay. I find really fascinating. Um, so they're really often... interesting mixes of food. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Food, cultures, um, things coming together, um, ideas crisscrossing. And then I also think food, it's, it's always informed. It tells you so much about society, mm. you know, the economics of it, even the topography, the landscape that it's every time I sort of think, okay, well, maybe I haven't written so much about food in this one. It's not, I have, I've just maybe focused on a different aspect. I think even with An Echo of Scandal, which is your latest book, which I am having some really late nights because I'm <laughs> laying in bed reading it. That's um, how it should be. <laughs> it's the kind of the focus when we first met you was more about the cocktails, which we'll talk about in a minute, but the food descriptions in the early part of the book are beautiful. And I don't want to give anything away about the book, but, you know, when um, a character is, yep. is cooking and is learning to cook and it's kind of her escape from everything else that surrounds mm. her, the descriptions are absolutely stunning. And you can see that you, as a as a writer, are really interested in that because they kind of leap off the page. Mm. And I don't, as I say, I don't want to say anything because I don't want to give anything away. No spoilers. No spoilers, no. <laughs> now, like us, you're quite, a food history nut and obviously yep. just a, a history nut. Yeah. <laughs> if you could travel back, you only get to pick one. We're not going to do a top three for this. <laughs> if you could travel back and eat in one particular era, which would it be and why? This was so hard to think about because I had to sort of put myself aside slightly and think like, oh, as a woman at the time, it probably wouldn't have been great. Mm. But um, so probably my my first, my debut book which came out is set in um a paris patisserie in the belle epoque but probably i'd go further back from that and go maybe 1830 nice so um paris paris 1830 yeah. antonin Carême. um you know he's just changing the face of everything creating these amazing sculptures of confectionery mm. um out of sugar and marzipan and just that that complete what he says he says something i'm going to paraphrase it horribly i think it's I think he said, uh, if architecture is the noblest of the arts, patisserie 
is the finest form of architecture or something like that. And he's he's saying that pastry is like this this noble form. It's not frivolous. It's this, you know, uh, desire for perfection. Yeah, I mean, when you look at a piece of paste, like a pastry, and you can see every single individual layer, it gets me a bit teary and goosebumpy because you can look at it and you can see every layer and you just, and it's so thin and mm. crispy and you just, you think of it as it is a work of art because somebody has spent time. Mm. So much time and effort. Especially in, in those days. Yeah. You know, there were, there were no... No fridges. Yeah, keeping no, your pastry you know, cold. Machines, you know, they might yeah. have had some kind of rolling machine at that point, but I doubt it. And it's mm. all done by hand. Mm. Yeah, and it's just all these beautiful thin layers, and it's it is art. Yeah. So is that what you choose to eat? Some real delicate kind of sugar creation. Yeah, I think I'd be more interested in being in the kitchen while it was being made, actually watching the process because um, mm, I think be awesome. it's it would be amazing, and I find it sort of fascinating and sort of almost vaguely repellent at the same time, just because. There is so much work and so much detail going into this exquisite ephemeral thing, which mm. isn't going to last. And it's just made of sugar. And of course, you had like, you had all of the, I'm sure all of the, the sort of people working in the kitchen would never, ever have been able to afford this thing. And, you know, vast swathes of countries in poverty. And then you have these celebrity chefs making this incredible mm. thing. So, I really like the the kind of dichotomy of it as well, this work of art um, at a time where, like you say, it would have been really hard to create and there's a lot of work and a lot of hours and painstaking detail gone into it. Do you think, you know, if any of us went back in time and we were to look in a kitchen, whether it's a restaurant or, you know, someone's home, do you think we would just be absolutely sort of, I don't know, aghast at the hygiene that they would have had. I mean, it wouldn't have been, I mean, in, in good restaurants, good places, mm. it wouldn't have been that bad, but it still would be significantly different to what it is today because we've got all these rules and regulations. Do you think that would make us a bit squeamish? Probably, but then I think if we spent any time out in the world at all, the world surrounding it, there'd be a lot more things to be squeamish about. But yeah, I'm sure that, you know, you probably have like raw meat being cut on the same surfaces as vegetables and things like that but um the kitchen was probably the cleanest place (laughs) yeah and although that might be far from our standards today although Mm. let's be honest a little bit of bacteria does us good yes as long as it's not seminar yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) i want to bring it back to your writing but while still thinking about food do you have a favorite food or drink scene or description or passage from one of your books that you just think wow I wrote that and I'm really bloody proud of it and if you do can you share it with us this was really hard to narrow down because like you say I write about food a lot and it's sometimes hard to remember exactly where in a in a book something is but I have got one and I'm going to read it not because it's my necessarily my favorite it's my dad's favorite and this is this is a book it's from where the wild cherries grow which is my second book this is the one set in Catalonia, French Catalonia in 1919, um, also set in Norfolk in 1969. Um, there's a character in it in the 1969 sections who's essentially my dad, very much based on sort of... Does he know that? Yeah, he does. Okay, he does, definitely knows it. He loves it. Is that why this is his favourite? <laughs> I think that, this book is his favourite and I think that's why. This character's sort of like a you know working class kid who finds himself off on a grand adventure, which is very much what happened to my dad. But... Um, the section I'm going to read is actually from the 1919 
chapter and it's um the main character she's remembering she's sort of it's after the end of the first world war and she keeps finding herself lost in her memories of the past and the memories of her two brothers who have both been killed so um and it's about blackberries so i thought that was topical for this time of year we ate our picnic by the side of a little stream it was as glorious as a feast we drank cold water straight from our hands filling our bellies with the taste of ancient stone and winter to come it was when we were on our way home, the sun sinking low and golden, that we found the blackberries. Hedgerow upon hedgerow, heavy with fruit. They squashed between our fingers, on our tongues. I still remember their taste, perfumed and sweet. Not the bright May sweetness of a strawberry, but deeper, more mysterious, as if they'd drawn the cold, smoky nights into their juice, as if they'd seen midnight. Lovely. That's that lovely. lovely. Yeah, I really want some blackberries. Blackberries yeah. are such a, I think they're such a timeless, the, the picking of blackberries yeah. as a child is a timeless activity. Exactly. So that, that scene is from 1919, but mm. all of us picked blackberries as kids. Yeah. And I really like that description of it, that as if they've seen midnight. I feel like I've missed out. You would have done other things in Australia that we couldn't do, like avoid snakes. Yeah, spiders. spiders. Yeah. No, we didn't totally, have to do that. Totally comparable. Do you have memories of, of picking fruit or things like foods which sort of came around seasonally? And No, hedgerows isn't really a thing in Australia. Mm. I mean, especially, I mean, I'm from Brisbane, so it's okay. very warm. Yeah. So anything like that, you know, we had fruit trees, like some places, you know, mangoes, guavas, that wow. sort of thing. Oh. But Imagine you, that. If, if you don't <clears throat> get to them fast enough, yeah. the fruit bats did, or... <laughs> The birds, so there really wasn't that much left over. And if you wanted to be picky, you can go and put netting mm. around the trees and around individual fruits as they grow. But no, very different, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, blackberry picking is a huge thing. I think even now, when kids just watch TV and play computer games, listen to me. I sound like an old lady. <laughs> you are about eighty. <laughs> I am going to be thirty-five next month. We can't talk about that. It's funny because we interviewed a forager, um, mm. Liz. She's amazing and she does a lot of foraging courses with children. And yeah. she, she says that children make the best foragers because they have the small hands. Yes. And she said, you know, the, these families will come on her courses and they'll say, oh, we don't know what to pick. We don't know where to start. And she'll say, have you ever been blackberry picking? And they'll say, well, yes, of course. We all did it as children. Mm. Well, that's foraging. And that's where she often starts, isn't it? Mm. And we'll put a link into that episode in the yeah. show notes for this. I haven't listened to that one. I have to go and find it. She makes it sound very exciting, and it makes me makes me really jealous because I feel like I missed out. Carrie can still do. Yeah. We will take on the way to can the archaeology club. We will go yep. blackberry picking. Yes, I, I I still haven't done it because <laughs> I just don't know where to go aside from just wandering around a park. Blackberry Hill in Bristol. There you go. You'll have to take me. Okay, although we've missed it for now. It's so all about knowing the. You'll have to wait until next year. I also want to go find next year. I, I've planned to do it every year since I've lived here to go and get elderflowers to make elderflower cordial. Yes, I've still not done that. I did pick some elderberries once and froze them and then turned them into a pie. Were you oh, sure nice. they were elderberries? Yes. There's some mushrooms growing in our garden, and I put a picture on Twitter and said, "Can I eat these?" And loads of people came back to me and were like. No, <laughs> have you have you picked them? No, no, I haven't. Yeah, I would never trust mushrooms. No, anyway. someone would come and tell you it's amnita muscara or something. Like, Do not eat that. that mushroom. Yeah. How long does it take you, on average, to write a book? Um. Well, my first, my debut novel took me 
I think probably about four or five years, but I was writing it on and off because uh, I was at university and then I'd finished uni and I was working my first sort of full-time job. Um, so that one took me longer. And it was obviously a lot of the time was research. Now, I it seems to be my pattern, which I'm going to try and get out of because it's not, not very convenient, but I'll, I'll spend maybe three months just researching solidly three or four months reading kind of researching maybe going on a research trip to visit places and then I kind of lock down and just write um so this uh, an echo of scandal I think I wrote in four months far out five months four is months, that maybe? quite fast to to write a novel um I mean you'll get different answers from different people right um I it is quite fast and I should have left myself more time but it's like everything it just reminds me of you know when you have a dissertation or an essay mm-hmm. do you anything oh I've got tons of time and then suddenly I realized I didn't have tons of time I had two months or three months and so I had to start but it, I, there's something about locking into the process that it, I really enjoy and it's quite a luxury almost because everything else goes out of your head and so you, you just want to sort of be there that's okay. So talk us through the, the process. So you have an idea, then you go into the research phase, then the writing phase. When do you sit down and think, right, I need to come up with a new idea for a book? Or could you be literally washing up or crossing the road and then inspiration strikes? Do you have shower thoughts is what she's asking? Showers are the best. Mm-hmm. They are the best for coming up with uh, with ideas. And yes, yeah, sometimes if I'm writing and I'm stuck and I don't know what to do, I'll do two things. One, I'll either call my sister um, because it's so great having someone who understands the process of well and I'll say, it's not working, what do I do? I haven't done this. And then she'll either just listen and then eventually I'll figure out what's wrong. Um, or she'll say, well, why are you doing that? Why is that character doing that? And then, mm. then I'll sort of come to the solution or I'll go and have a shower. And just stand there. And I think it's something about the white noise, maybe. That, think, um, yeah, something about your brain is doing something else. And so there's this bit in your brain that kind of starts doing its own thing. Yeah. I don't know. So I just think it's true. Yeah. Shower thoughts, that's a real thing. Yep, I'm an advocate for the shower thoughts. Yeah, they're great. I was thinking of trying to get some of those washable crayons that you can write on the tiles <gasps> with. Because then I'd have to just do that and then go and put them all in my notebook or something. But... Yeah. And is that how it starts with a with a handwritten notebook, and then you transfer to the, to the computer? Yeah, um, yeah. Everything starts in handwritten form, or occasionally note form on my phone. But often I'll start handwriting, or if I'm stuck, I'll switch back to handwriting. Sometimes that's the opposite to one of your main characters in An Echo Scandal. Starts on the typewriter and yeah. then moves on to the the. I'm not saying anything. I'm not giving anything. No, no that's not spoilers. That isn't, a, that isn't a spoiler. <laughs> that isn't really a spoiler. And what did you study at university? Was it a, a kind of literary subject? Or? It was. It was English literature. Right. Okay. So. <laughs> I was just trying to work out if you'd done something completely different and then gone down this tangent to become a writer. No, I'm really not much good for anything else at this point. <laughs> so um, occasionally I look at my CV and just go, oh, mm-hmm. just the last five years have just been just me sitting on my own, making things up. So, uh, what kind of research do you do? How does it work? I tend to read a lot of primary sources. So, um, I'll read if I can find letters or journals from the time. Sometimes I'll read travel guidebooks from the oh, time. Cool. So, I'm just reading one at the moment, which was written about visiting Paris, and it's from the 1850s. 
Fab. And it's, you know, for the for the English tourists visiting Paris in the 1850s. And it's what's really interesting, it says, because of all the upheaval, it talks a lot about how all of the road names have changed. And, you know, like this is used to be Rue Bonaparte and it's not anymore and you have mm. to call it this and everyone goes by the old name. And so I think those give you a really fascinating insight into how people viewed cities or countries or regions at the time, mm. um, not seen through the lens of, of, you know, someone looking back, but yeah. somebody in a situation. Um, so that's a big part of it. And then... I just, I love the fact that we have these amazing internet archives because, I mean, for this book, An Echo of Scandal, I read a lot of um, old cocktail books and old cocktail manuals, and some of them are from 1878, 1888. And you experimented too. Um, of course. <laughs> Which is easy because some of those old cocktails, they just don't have mixers. They're just spirits. They are literally just, just, just spirits. So I want to ask you, what is a pony? It's an old-fashioned measurement. Um, it's kind of a similar, you know, you have the bar... The bar measurements now, it's, it's you know, a pony, a jigger, a quart, different things. But um, it's a pretty hefty measure, mm. um, especially in sort of non-standardised, as it would have been. So, it sounds like the kind of place I want to get in a granny. Yeah. Some of the recipes, it's like pour in half a glass of brandy and then half a glass of sherry and half a glass of gin. And you're they are literally <laughs> so they are a glass of this, a glass of that. Mm. So for part of your research um with an echo of scandal you actually worked with a, a mixologist here in bristol um dan bovey from hiding yeah tell us great. a bit about that well it was great um so it was dan bovey uh andrew osborne and gareth aldridge they sort of all created it together and i think that was really fun because i i gave them some ideas of of the setting and everything and what um i sort of wanted it to achieve and so we we're trying to achieve this balance of the kind of freshness of the fruit in all the markets and the warmth, but then this kind of floral note, which, you know, would have been like the jasmine in the gardens and things. And then because of the vintage angle, that's why it includes a uh, chambrisette, which is a strawberry vermouth, which sounds quite weird, but yeah. if you look at the label, it's beautiful kind of art, Art Nouveau label and it's been the same unchanged for about over 100 years so Amazing. so it's great they actually got to play with vintage ingredients as well and use kind of Remy Martin cognac and that's another ingredient that's been you know sort of cla these classic brands that you see the names of in these cocktail books from the 1920s so carrying that through. And they're actually um, still going now. Yeah yeah still going now. So now you have this original cocktail. I do which we're very lucky drinking right now and it's Delicious. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm drinking it. Paris is driving. I'm finding it delicious. It's quite so, strong. <laughs> did you um, did you recreate any of the cocktails that are in the book? Yeah, I have had a go at a couple, and they are quite strong. Some of them are interesting because they they use ingredients that are quite hard to find. So, like sort of Swedish punch, which is like um, it's a it's a version of arak, which is a kind of rum based mm. molasses base spirit from um yeah and, and java and indonesia mm. it's from you get different types from where it's from but then that was in and this is going back to food history why it's so interesting that was imported into sweden by the east india trading company mixed into a, a punch with like with some extra wine and things and um a block of sugar again from more colonial trading mm. so you build up this picture of these 
trade routes and mm. kind of obviously everything that goes with that. But Swedish Punch, it's not, it's, I think it is around now. I think it has some bartenders around the world are kind of giving it a bit of a revival just because it's an interesting ingredient that you kind of, you don't see on shelves, but yeah. The idea of these cocktails being quite strong and these kind of beautiful labels and it really speaks of, you know, a lot of the book is set in the 20s in Tangier and this idea of these English uh, intrepid adventurers and people kind of travelling and living a, a free life that they couldn't necessarily have if they were back home in the UK. It, it really, like, captures the essence of that really well. Mm. I'm doing this thing with my hand that, <laughs> that the people can't see who are listening to this, but I'm doing this. Kind of like think, sprinkling salt on something. Uh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> international money sign. I yes. Am. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it, it's... It, the international zone of Tangier is really fascinating. Um, I encourage everyone to go and read about it if you haven't. From about 19... Oh, I think it was 1923? 1921? Oh, no, I should know this. Um, into 1956, when... Morocco obviously declared independence and Tangier went back to Morocco. But for all that time, it was ruled by this consortium of countries, uh, by, but by no one in particular. So it became this real interesting space for a lot of things to exist simultaneously. And obviously it had a reputation for violence and seediness and spying and exploitation and money laundering and cocktails. Ooh, also... <laughs> Scandalous. Scandalous. How important is the food and drink for you when you're writing? How important is it for it to be accurate? I mean, I try to be as accurate as I can, and sometimes that's hard in terms of... So I'm vegetarian, which I uh, don't, don't actually mention very often, especially with my books, because, I mean, I do I do write a lot about meat and fish and things, and I think you have to, like, and I'm always trying to capture that, so... I, I do want to be accurate. So sometimes I was trying to, with my third book, I was trying to describe the taste of prosciutto. Um, and I can't really remember it. So I was texting all my friends being like, how would you, gave, giving them lists of words, being like, which, how would you describe it? Like, you know, what's the feel in your mouth of as you're eating it and things? Because I want to get that right. But mm. um, I'll also, you know, thank God for YouTube, because in An Echo of Scandal, a character cooks um, a stew with um, oxtail or bull's tail. And I have no idea how to skin a bull's tail. <laughs> no idea. So again, Most people don't, I would say. Great YouTube videos went on. Saw a man skin- skinning a bull's tail just after it's come off the animal. And so... That must have been quite hard as a vegetarian to, to watch and then write about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not something I would particularly enjoy seeing, Uh live but then I'm approaching it from a different standpoint I'm sort of approaching it from a research and Mm. wanting to get it right for the book so objective objective standpoint what's next are you allowed to talk about your current project because I think that's really interesting I think so I can talk a bit about it so it's it it's not a complete departure from the genre I've been writing in it it's going to be a bit different it's going to be completely historical and because I think in my books the historical parts are always the strongest so it's going to be completely historical, uh, set in 1853. It starts in Paris in the era of Napoleon III. So going to be very interesting. And it's a lot of it's going to be about mushrooms. 
Mm. Um, so <laughs> mushroom growers at, at that time had kind of repopulated some of the catacombs and caverns and limestone caves left behind under Paris mm. and were growing these um, rosé de pré mushrooms, the pink of the fields. And they were, you know, Paris mushrooms and all the chefs loved them and they couldn't get enough of them because they were grown in Paris. Um, and they could grow all year round because of the climate. So they were very sought after. And so it opened with someone who uh, she's grown up in these caverns growing these mushrooms for the aristocracy. And there's um, there's this something I love in that about, you know, they go up into the streets, take the horse dung from the carriages, take it back down into the catacombs, grow the mushrooms in it to sell them back to the rich again, which is there's this kind of... It's that whole fight club thing, yeah. selling women their fat back to themselves. <laughs> oh. So how on earth but did yes. you come up with that idea? I don't even remember. I think I saw... Because people are now starting to grow mushrooms under Paris again. I think I saw something about the mushroom growers of, of Paris and I just thought that's amazing fascinating and what a what a fascinating era and then i realized i didn't know anything about the 1850s and um you know Louis and napoleon the nephew not actually napoleon so um but the more i started reading about that era because that's when paris became paris you know mm. that's when the grand boulevard sprang up and and the eiffel tower started to be constructed and it was before les Halles was les Halles. Uh, so it's an inter- it's an interesting space in terms of it's kind of a Paris but it's liminal Paris it's not quite the Paris everyone knows yet which is actually probably a, an era a quite a, a slim era that actually people haven't written about a lot well I mean it's Paris everyone writes oh, okay <laughs> but um, I mean maybe not maybe I yeah. this I wrote one in the Belle Epoque and that's very very much written about but um I'm always trying to find the edges of something so like with borders I'm trying to find the edges so hopefully I can do that well, yeah. you've painted a lovely picture about it already, so... Oh, thank you. I'm only about 15,000 words in, so... Fingers oh. crossed. <laughs> we'll Sounds like a lot of words. <laughs> that is a lot of words. I don't think I've ever written 15,000 words for anything in my Dissertation? life. Dissertation? No, I did it in a weird way and it was only 8,000 and that was just the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Wow, you're so lucky. My dissertation was 12,000 words and it killed me. So I have utmost respect for you. Well, I mean, I do do it all day. <laughs> Every day, <laughs> almost. Well, I have to say it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And it's been really nice for us to kind of see it from a different angle, I think, because, you know, obviously we normally talk to chefs or foragers or pig farmers or yeah. people that work actually in the food and drink industry. And I think the thing that's quite nice is that you're coming at it from, in a way, the same angle as us, in that we love it, but we don't work in it. So for me, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I have to say that the book I'm reading at the moment is fantastic. And I'm not just saying that because you signed a copy for me. (laughs) Thank you so much. It is actually brilliant. I'm really enjoying it. And I'm going to lend it to you next. No, go and buy a copy. Thank you so much for having us, Laura. Well, thank you. It has been brilliant. Thank you for having me on the podcast. That's great. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll no doubt like some of our others. So please do take the time to listen to our back catalogue, which you can find on any podcast platform you use or our website at thesource.com. If you really enjoyed it, consider supporting us through Patreon. In return for helping us make the podcast even better, we're offering special behind-the-scenes recordings and more. Take a look at patreon.com slash at the source for more information. Lastly, we're on Twitter and Instagram as at the source. We're sharing visuals and talking food. Come and join us. <laughs>